So I just got done watching Making a Murder. Have you seen this Netflix documentary yet? It's, uh, you know, it's uh, the talk of the town. Everyone is talking about it. I just finished it, and I got a few things to say. I want to get some things off my chest, as I think a lot of people might understand if they've watched it, or at least part, part of it. I'm not necessarily going to spoil the whole thing, I don't think. I'll try to avoid spoiling it. I'll assume you've seen at least the first few episodes. I think there are 10 episodes. Um, I also am going to talk about my own experience with this very thing. I've experienced similar outrageous police behavior. And I think I've talked about it before in the podcast, but I'm not quite sure. So I'm going to talk about it again now. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle. And I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. So if you want to hear the full episode, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast for a small monthly pledge. Also, know that part of your pledge will go toward some of the charities that we support. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone. Thank you so much for becoming patrons, people. We love you so much. So, Making a Murder. It's a documentary on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's amazing. And it is, particularly the first, I don't know, I'd say five episodes, particularly the first four. The second five episodes, you know, episodes six through ten, in my opinion, could have been condensed down. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but the first four episodes, it's just like one amazing moment after the next. Whereas episodes six through ten, it's sort of a long slog through the legal ups and downs of the of the trial. But anyway, so basically, my uh, and I'm a lay person when it comes to the police force and the government and the law. I'm just a therapist. I don't know any more than anyone else about these topics. So take all that with a grain of salt. And if you're an expert on there out there, let me know if I'm uh, wrong about anything. Uh, I'm sure I'll be oversimplifying things and getting things wrong. Whenever I hear non-experts talk about psychology or therapy, it's frequently it's frequent that I will, in my head, roll my eyes at a lot of the things they're saying and say to myself, well, that's partially true, but you're not really considering the bigger picture here. And that's natural because you don't know what you're talking about. So, you know, I want to uh, respect that I don't really know what I'm talking about. Having said that, I can talk about my own experience. And for that, I know that I am a total expert because I'm the only one who experienced these things. So let me tell you a story. Let me tell you some stories related to th- this whole episode is basically going to be a critique on our system, on our police system, our legal system, our justice system, the way in which our government reacts to complaints about itself. Um, you know, if you have a complaint about McDonald's, you, and McDonald's doesn't, doesn't respond well to it, uh, 
then you can go to Burger King or you can go get pizza. You have choices. If you have a complaint about the police force, you can't go anywhere else. There's no, there's no alternative police force. There's no, there's no other police force down the street you can go to. There's no competition. So when a police force, when any entity or organization has a monopoly on something, in general, customer service tends to become a, uh, a non-priority because it doesn't matter. If you're the police force, you're the justice system, you don't care if the people don't like you because you're not, you're not an elected official and you don't care. And, uh, and you have a ton of power and you're, you're in a group of people. You know, the police force is a group of people that can work together and coordinate together against any individual that decides to complain about them. And this is when you have problems. Now, I know that there are systems set up for the public to be able to complain about what's happening in the legal system. And we, we do have some elected officials that can affect the legal system. But, you know, ask any African-American in the United States if the system listens to them and uh, helps them with their, with their problems. Uh, well, maybe not any African-American, but, but marginalized, really any marginalized group of people. Ask, ask them if, in general, they, their, their complaints are listened to by the justice system. My guess is you know the answer is no. Now, that's beginning to change primarily because of the Internet, because now people can band together and actually complain with one big voice finally against these, these uh, establishments of power. And we're beginning to see some changes, you know, putting video cameras on all police officers as they go about their job. And it seems ridiculous that we have to do that because we don't trust them. I mean, just the fact that there's a whole section, I think something, I don't know, some large percentage of Americans are, are in favor of putting video cameras on every single police officer. Imagine if you were in an industry and the public was so distrustful of you that they demanded that they spend lots of tax dollars putting video cameras on you to watch you, watch you do everything you do because they don't trust you anymore. That's a terrible sign. And the police forces, and there are many police officers, people who work in the justice system that agree with me and are trying to enact change. I know some of these people personally. I've had one of them on the podcast years ago. They're, they're trying to affect this image by actually enacting change at the precinct level. But it's slow going. Uh, we have made some changes. There have been some movements with regards to this, more advocacy for women, more ad- advocacy for abused people, more, more education around implicit racism, this sort of thing. But in, in, a, in a way, in my opinion, I think our justice system and the police force is stuck in the 60s still. They're still, they're still totally backward systems and backward practices. Absolutely. Uh, and we need to change that. And my, my hope is, is that over time, these things will change. But anyway, so let me tell you some, some, some things that I've been through just to, if you're a therapist out there, 
listen to this because it could happen to you. So I'm working with a family uh, with some teenagers. And again, I may have said this story before. And it was a long time ago. But but I remember it vividly because it was so traumatic for me. And I don't use the word traumatic lightly. I was working with a family and a uh, something happened that initiated some sort of investigation on behalf of the uh, police force. They were looking into some minor crime, but, but major enough in order to justify an investigation. So... I'm working with a client, and I get a call. This is when I worked at an agency soon after I was graduated. So I'm, you know, 28 years old at the time, very inexperienced. And I get this call from a police officer. The police officer identifies himself and says, you know, I'm so-and-so, and I am investigating this case, and I understand that you are working with this family, and I demand that you tell me information to help with this investigation. And at the time, I was pretty uh, insecure about my knowledge of ethics and the law, but I was, I was 95% sure that I didn't have authorization to talk to this person, even if they were a police officer. And, you know, so I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, but I don't have a release of information to talk to you. And I'd be happy to ask the client to sign one. But until then, I, I can't talk to you. Well, I can't really sum up or convey to you what happened next because I, I could only give you the, the broad strokes. What happened, basically, I talked to this guy for over an hour on the phone. And what should have been perhaps a 30-second conversation, it should have ended right there. He should have said, oh, Okay, well, try to get a consent, and I really hope that you can convince them. I'll talk, to the cl- I'll talk to your client as well, and maybe I can convince them to sign that form, and then we can talk. And that should have been the end of the conversation, but that isn't the end of the conversation. We talked for another hour, and throughout that time, he, he used his, his well-trained techniques to intimidate me, to make me afraid, to make me, to threaten me to make me question my own ethics, my own legal responsibilities to confidentiality. He was telling me that I didn't have that right and that if I didn't tell him information that he was looking for, he could have me arrested and thrown in prison for obstruction of justice or something like that. And he wasn't just making minor threats to me. He was making major major threats repeatedly, and he knew what to say to scare me. And about halfway through this conversation, my heart is pounding, and I'm terrified. And, then, and no one else is around. It's late at night, I remember. My supervisor wasn't around. I'm all alone. I'm on the phone with this guy. And I'm saying, well, could I get off the phone and consult and get back to you? No, you have to tell me now. If you get off the phone with me, I will, I will find you, and I will lock you up and I will charge you with obstruction of justice. You must tell me this information. And so I began to give in. I remember I started to think, okay, well, what if I just tell him a little bit? Maybe that'll get him off my back. So I began to tell him a little bit. Well, that just fueled the fire. He just started telling me more. Or he just started trying to intimidate me more. 
And after a while, I, I figured out what he was looking for. And I knew that I didn't have any information that would help him. He was investigating a crime that I didn't have any information that would help him. And so eventually I, I figured that out. I said, actually, if, if I'm understanding you right, actually, I don't know anything about what, what you're actually investigating. I could, even if I did break confidentiality completely, there's nothing I know that will help you. I guarantee you that. I've never talked about anything related to this with my client. So I, I don't see why we have to talk about this. And he would say, oh, well, you don't know that. You got... And again, imagine a police officer comes up to you and threatens to put you in prison if you don't do what they want. You know, even if you're a, a well-versed uh, person on the law, even if you know, which I didn't at the time, that he couldn't do that, of course, even if you knew he would, uh, he would have no legal standing to lock me up, which I didn't know at the time. But even if he did know that, we all know that police officers can easily trump up false information to get you to become locked up. And there's nothing you can do about that. They could plant something on you. They could make a claim that you did something. They could... Uh, you know, say there was reasonable doubt or re there was a reasonable reason as to why I searched them and found this on, them. you know, police officers, if they really want, because of the, the screwed up balance of power in our system, they can, any cop can lock you up for anything. Now, they might get sued later on. They might get in trouble, kind of, but they probably won't. And they, and they know that. At the very least, they know that they won't get in trouble for making a threat and for scaring the crap out of a random person. So even though I had committed no crime and I knew nothing about what this police officer was investigating, he proceeded to traumatize me, threaten me with, with putting me in jail. I remember after about an hour and 15 minutes, I finally just became so fatigued, I started telling him, look, I, I guess... You're just going to have to lock me up because I don't know what else to tell you. And, and so I, I had just given up. I just said, well, I, you know, I feel like I've, 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 uh, I've gone beyond the limits of confidentiality anyway. I'm in trouble, I guess, either way. He keeps threatening me. I don't know what else to tell him. I might as well just, I can't, I can't go on. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless okay, lock me up. And then the conversation basically ended. And looking back, I realized it's because he realized he didn't have a leg to stand on anymore. He realized he had intimidated me to the point where I'd given up hope. And since I'd given up hope, I was no longer, uh, he didn't have any leverage anymore. I'd given up. <laughs> and he never intended on pursuing any kind of legal action against me. He was just saying that to, to scare me. And, and actually looking back, it really makes me wonder about his intentions because an hour and 15 minutes talking to a therapist that doesn't likely know anything about the situation, why would you be doing that? Other than you are a sadist and you've been given full license to abuse anyone you want. You know, if you're a sadist, if you get off on harming other people, there are several jobs that will give you full license to do that. And being a police officer in today's world is one of those positions. 
If you're a police officer today, you will often get away with the purposeful harm of other human beings. In fact, you might even be rewarded for it. Now, maybe in some instances, we as a public want that sadist to harm somebody. (laughs) They're a criminal that just killed 10 people and then you, you're a sadist police officer, you take pleasure in killing that person. Well, you know, for us in society, we want you to go out and get that person. But if you're a sadist, you don't often have an opportunity to do that. So you have to get your rocks off every day. And why not, you know, by just randomly intimidating a therapist on the phone? Now, of course, I have no idea if he's a sadist, but but I suspect he might have been. Because how could you as a human being sit there and do that to someone for no reason for so long? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the culture of the police force. Who knows? His own personal demons he's wrestling with. I don't know. Okay. Story number two. Fast forward, I don't know, a year. I am working with a different family. And I'm doing in-home therapy. And I'm, I'm working mainly with this teenage boy, but I'm working with the whole family. And there's a... There's two boys in the family, a, a teenage boy and a younger boy. He's younger kids, probably nine, eight years old or something. The older kid I'm working with is 14, 15. Well, so one day I show up at the house and the kid refuses to talk with me. In fact, he, he sees me arriving and normally we would have talk, talked very friendly. Uh, I had worked really hard to develop a trusting relationship with him. Incidentally, in the beginning of the relationship, he hated me. He, he was being forced to talk to me by his parents, and he hated me coming to the house and talking to him. But I worked my ass off over months to get him to talk to me, get him to like me. And I was quite happy in that I succeeded in, in getting him to trust me. He, he hated therapists in general, and, and I worked hard, and it was very difficult and I had a lot of difficult tran- counter transference throughout the entire time, but I got him to, tr- to trust me. So I arrived at the house and I thought, you know, he'll be happy to see me as he has been for the past few weeks. And instead he is the most rejecting of me I've ever seen. He sees me and he instantly bolts out the door and he goes, you know, walking down the street at a brick at a brisk pace. He's walking very angrily. And I catch up to him on foot and I, I say, you know, what's going on? Where are you going? He's just like, don't talk to me. I'm never talking to you again. And I'm, I'm saying, well, what do you mean you're never talking to me? I'm never talking to you again. Get away from me. And, you know, I've had my fair share of difficult sessions with teenagers. I've never, I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, he was... He was the most hostile, the most uh, angry at me that I've ever seen from a client. So I go back to the house and I, I say, what's going on? And, and the mother sits me down and she, she's saying, well, I, I can't say I blame him. I can't say I blame what, what's going on here. And I say, what do you mean? Well, uh, a police officer came to the house. And uh, so backing up here, essentially what had happened was there was an allegation 
made by, I think, a school teacher, I'm not sure, that uh, the younger boy had disclosed that his older brother, my client, had sexually abused him. So the eight-year-old boy told a teacher or indicated something. And I remember after learning of the details, it was a very weak disclosure. It wasn't like, my older brother sexually abused me. It was something like, my older brother touched me. or It was something very minor. And it, the situation, long story short, ended up proving that the older brother had not abused his younger brother at all. But there was an allegation. There was a reason to make a report. The person made the report, CPS. And CPS got the report, and then CPS called the police force. All of this happened in a whirlwind very quickly in the span of one morning. And a police officer, the same police officer that had abused me earlier, coincidentally, the same police officer gets a hold of this case and learns that, somehow learns I'm the therapist, maybe through CPS, learns that I'm a therapist assigned to him, and goes to the school, pulls the 14-year-old boy, my client, out of school, and begins to interrogate him. And uses all the same tactics he worked on me, or he used on me. I'm going to put you in jail if you don't confess to abusing your younger brother. We have evidence. And he brings out this other thing. He says, in, in actuality, I have talked with your therapist, Kirk. I've talked with him. And guess what he told me? He told me that you did sexually abuse your younger brother. Now, to be clear, the only time I'd ever talked to this police officer was maybe a year or two before about a different case, and I never revealed anything along those lines. And here he is lying to my client, telling him that my client told me, and then I told the police officer without any resistance that the kid had confessed to me that he had sexually abused his younger brother. So just imagine you're the client. You've done nothing wrong. You're 15 years old. You're in a troubled family. And a police officer arrives at your school one day, pulls you out of class, corners you in a room, puts the bright light on you, starts to interrogate you, says, I know you sexually abused your brother. You must admit it. I know you did it. So you might as well confess. And he has no legal ability. He has no legal knowledge. He doesn't know that police officers can just lie out of their ass. He has no idea. And then imagine you're sitting there and the police officer says, whom we are raised to believe are truthful, honest, respectable human beings, but they're not all the time. Incidentally, I have friends who are police officers whom I love. Uh, so I just want to interject that. <laughs> But if you've watched Making a Murderer, you understand the outrage. So, so imagine you're that person and, and you're being yelled at. And then the police officer says to you, I've talked to your therapist and your therapist tells me you admitted to him that you sexually abused your younger brother. Imagine that not only is a police officer attacking you, but now you learn that your therapist is lying about you and not only just lying but lying to police officers 
that you've sexually abused your younger brother. I mean, what a terrible thing this must have been for this kid to be told that, to be betrayed in that way. And he came from a long line of being betrayed in this way. That's why it took so long for me to get him to trust me. So, so then the mother tells me this whole background. And I'm shocked and disgusted and angry. And particularly angry because it's the same goddamn cop. The same cop. I mean, what? So I tell them, I tell them, um, no, I, I, one, I, I haven't even talked, I, I talked to him years ago about a different case, one. Two, he's, the kid has never told me he sexually abused his younger brother. I have no knowledge of that. And if he did tell me, I would never have told a police officer about that. That's uh, confidential information. Now, incidentally, I'd probably have to tell CPS that, but, you know, whatever. The point is, is I didn't say any of that stuff. Well, long story short, uh, on this level, uh, moving forward, I never had a relationship with that kid again. He never talked to me again. He had suffered prior to me meeting him, and after meeting me, it was just another horrible betrayal, a horrible... He, I tried to explain to him what had happened, and I don't think he ever really believed me. He didn't know what to believe. I mean, who's he going to believe? The police officer, me? His I mean, there's, we're, everyone's lying to him. Someone's lying to him. He doesn't know who, and he can't prove it, and he's getting in trouble, and he's angry. And so he just crawled into his shell, and I never saw him again, and I don't know what happened to him. So, this, so then I, I say, okay, that's it. I'm going, I'm going to his boss. This guy has to have a boss. This is insane. Who else is he doing this to? If, if he's done it to me twice, he must be doing I can't be the two isolated times this guy has been doing these kinds of things. Just in the effort of investigation and, and really minor investigations, he's playing you know, hardball and just ruining people's lives in the process. So I go to his boss. Somehow I figure out who his superior officer is. And I tell him basically what everything I just told you. And at the end of the story, I figure he's going to say to me, oh, my God, I can't believe we have a police officer on our force that is doing these things. It's awful. This is not the way a respectable police officer acts. I'm going to have a talk with him, and I'm going to have him apologize to you because the police are here to do a service for the community. They're not here to ruin people's lives. They're supposed to enhance our society. They're supposed to make the world a better place, not a worse place. And this officer needs to make up for what he did. And I'm going to have him go back to that client and tell him that he lied to, to that client so that that can at least try to repair that relationship. That's what I expected him to say. Here's what he actually said. I'm sorry, sir, but that is the way we operate. I'm sorry, sir. We have the right, he said this, because I, I said to him, because I, I didn't know, I said, you know, he's lying to people. He lied to me the first time saying he could arrest me when he can't. And then he lied to this client saying that I had said the disclosure that he sexually abuses. He, he's lying to people. And the officer said, oh, no, that's a, that's a common interrogation tactic. Lying is a part of that. That's completely above board. Interrogators can use whatever tactics are legally available to them, and that's one of them. That's fine. They can lie. 
And I thought, well, okay, I, I can see how tricking a suspect might be helpful sometimes. But there has to be some kind of limit, some kind of oversight, some kind of ethical guideline to follow that you can't just proceed to ruin us. The whole thing is, is the person is a suspect. They're not guilty. You don't know that they did it. You're investigating. And so, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Now, if someone's guilty, then by all means ruin their life <laughs> to, to get them to confess, I, I suppose. But if you don't know they're guilty and there was, you know, no way to know uh, definitively what had happened, there's very little information in, in both of the situations I was involved in. Until you, you know, know that, then you have to, to some extent, think, well, it's a possibility this guy is innocent. Therefore, I can't ruin his and everyone else's life around him just in the effort of trying to figure this out. And uh, the, so the police officer, the commanding officer, just said, oh, yeah, that's, that's part of what police officers can do. And he seemed a little apologetic, but he wasn't overtly apologetic. He, he wasn't telling me to go to hell. You know, he never apologized, but he, I think he said something along the lines of, I, I understand why you'd be upset. But that's how the legal system works, is essentially what he was saying. I, I, I get you. I get it. Okay. But sorry, that's the way the world is. That's the way we work. That's how we do things. And again, if there was a, uh, another police force I could go to the next time there was a crime, the next time our society had an issue, we could say, well, screw those guys. Look what they did. They totally fucked this up. Let's go to this other police force that doesn't do that. That at least that does all the things that this other police force does, except for that, that they, they think about things a little bit more. They get rid of the bad apples. They, they reprimand someone for doing something along these lines because it's not helpful to, to do this, especially when it's found in the end that this guy wasn't even guilty. We don't have that opportunity. We don't have that option. So we're stuck with one, one organization that provides the security for our society and our town. And since we have to give them our tax dollars, they have literally no incentive to listen to me or respond or please me. They have no reason to do that. So if you've seen Making a Murderer, you understand how atrocious and perhaps how common this is. The fact that we're watching a documentary, uh, is it Wisconsin that they live in? Somewhere in the Midwest. It's not anomalous. This is not an anomalous situation. When I saw this, I said, this happened to me twice. <laughs> and I'm not a criminal, <laughs> you know? I'm, I, I was an, I was a, an innocent person uh, associated with innocent people being investigated, and it happened to me. Uh, imagine being this 14-year-old kid that was being accused of sexual abuse and, and the way that he was being treated by the police force. And I only know what I know. There are other things could have happened. These sorts of things happen all the time. Again, when you have no system in place for the public to get justice from 
the organization of the police force, then these things happen and there's, there's, no, there's no repair. <laughs> it just keeps happening. And more and more people get abused and more and more people say to themselves, what's going on here? And more and more people begin to distrust the police force. And more and more people start saying black lives matter. And more and more people start looking at cops with a sideways glance of like, are you going to plant something on me? And more and more people are saying, well, there's corruption and you, you don't call the police force, you know, because they're not going to help you. Now, I know that there are policemen out, police women and, and men out there that, in fact, I would say probably the vast majority of them are noble people with noble intentions. People that become police officers in all likelihood could have done a number of things. They could have worked at Microsoft. They could have become a banker. But they decided to become a police person because they wanted to make a difference. They wanted to help. They wanted to catch the perp. They wanted to save the person. They wanted to do good for the community. They in all likelihood did. It's not the individuals. It's the system. If I became king of the world and I made everyone change to all restaurants into McDonald's, I made every I destroyed all the other restaurants and made every single restaurant a McDonald's. And, and I, you know, basically forced everyone, if they want to eat out at a restaurant, they have to eat at a McDonald's. Well, why would McDonald's care about what the customer thought? People need to eat. They don't have a choice. So, 10 years down the line, 20 years, 40 years down the line, the customer service at McDonald's would be a lot different than it is today. Their reputation would be even worse. (laughs) Their product would be worse. They would probably be only open for a couple hours. They'd get rid of those breakfast sandwiches because, you know, that's just a pain in the ass to make. So they're... Their, their Big Macs would start to smell bad. I mean, again, I'm just speculating. But, but that's what's happening in our legal system. And then you have politicians trying to do something, but they bump up against the old boys club sometimes in these communities. These police officers that stick together and fight back against the politicians. And everything stays the same. And you have situations in which whole communities don't even call the police because they don't trust them. Now, I I live in a community, downtown Seattle, that we do call the police because they tend to respond well. Uh, And when I've called 911, because I live downtown, there's things, I witness things happening around me (laughs) occasionally. Not terrible things, but, you know, concerning things like someone seems like they're having a medical, like a a homeless person might be having a medical emergency near my building. And I, I just call 911 police and medical professionals in our town are, they respond well. So, you know, I've had a, a number of good experiences as well, but as you can tell, they, these good experiences have not erased the trauma of the bad experiences. And again, if you come from a bad neighborhood, the wrong side of the tracks, 
in all likelihood, you have stories too. And even if you're from the good side of the tracks, like the way I grew up, then you, you might have stories too. I know people, oh gosh, I could just go on and on. Why am I talking about this? Well, I want all of us to try to do what we can to move our society forward in helping to change the system. We don't have to change the officers because they're good people, probably most of them, except for that one guy I ran into who I'm convinced is a sadist. We have to change the system. For instance, some communities have this. I think Seattle might have, have it. I don't know. You have a community board made up of, of non-police officers, volunteers of the community, who have power, real power in the police system. So a, a complaint comes in, and because we can't trust the police to respond to their own complaints, even though we should be able to trust them. We can't. So we have an outside body of people who are completely disconnected from the police force. They listen to the complaints. They become experts. They, they learn how the system works. And then they enact a ruling, and the government gives that c- civilian body a, uh, an amount of power to be able to enact change in the police force, like firing somebody or putting someone on detention or make, giving them mandatory training of, of some kind or, uh, or docking their pay, some kind of real consequence. Now, normally you could say, well, just go to the police force and tell them what they, what they did. But of course, we know that that doesn't always work. So these outside bodies, but these outside bodies, these bodies of civilians, these organizations, they need to be given real power by the government. The government needs to give those people actual power. Not complete power, but power. If you're a police force and there's an outside power that can, that can bring you down and ruin your life if you screw up, then you start following the rules and you start following your own ethical guidelines and you might actually develop some ethical guidelines. For instance, in my industry, the state can ruin our lives. They can take away our license and and take away our ability to practice. They can also fine us if we do bad things. And we are, as therapists, we are under no um, assumption. We do not assume that we can get away with things. Most therapists are paranoid about making a legal or ethical mistake. Why? Because there's real consequences to making a mistake. If, we as a th- if I as a therapist make a mistake, there's a real consequence that's going to happen to me. And it's be- not because we're good people or we're better than police officers. No, it's because we have a system in our government that will punish me if I make a mistake. There is no such element when it comes to the police force. And I know some people will say, oh, yes, there is. There's a, there's, there's a way to get back at police officers or to punish them. And police officers get fired all the time. Yeah, but it's not robust enough, apparently, right? Because how many people in our society distrust therapists? It's out there for sure. 
But for the most part, people trust us. <laughs> now, we're not dealing with situations on the street, you know, of, um, you know, in the span of a second, we have to make a decision as to whether or not to shoot someone. So I'm not going to claim that our job has as much stress or <laughs> difficulty. But why are therapists afraid? Well, because there's real consequences. Why aren't police officers afraid? And maybe they are. I don't know. Again, this is the part of the podcast where I say, again, I could be completely talking out of my ass. But all I know is twice the same officer abused me for no reason and abused my clients for no reason. And there was nothing that happened to him. In fact, his boss said he's just doing his job. In fact, he's, that's what he's supposed to do. So I'm positive that if I told my story to a group of civilians that knew the law and understood what should and shouldn't happen, I'm positive they would say, oh, that's terrible. That officer needs to be told to stop doing that. That officer needs some training on how to differentiate between situations that require heavy-handed tactics and situations that don't. That officer needs to be trained that you can lie about some things, but you can't lie about a therapeutic relationship because if the person uh, is troubled, they need the therapist to help them. And if you ruin that relationship, that person who might not actually have committed the crime might be driven to crime because of what you said to them. I mean, that's another thing you just got to think about. That kid who was... Uh, forced to believe that I had completely betrayed him in a fundamental, horrible way, maybe that was a factor that led to him committing crimes in the future. That's bad for our society. We don't want that, right? We want therapeutic relationships to be strong. That's part of what we can do to reduce criminality in our society. Anyway, I just have to take a deep breath and say that things will hopefully change. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of activists today about this, I think. There's a lot of movements. The internet is around, and that cat's out of the bag, I think. Everyone has a phone in their pocket, or everyone has a, has a movie. <laughs> everyone has a video camera in their pocket. And... Over time, I just have to believe that our society will change. Again, the police officers are good people. It's the system that's, that's the problem. When you have a system that doesn't have any checks and balances, then you have problems like this in any system. Okay, well, let me know what your thoughts are. Have you seen Making a Murder? Have you, have, what are your thoughts about the Manitowoc County police officers and the justice system and the, that prosecutor and the Avery family and Brendan being uh, interrogated and forced to confess to something that was obviously not true. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but tell me what you think. Are you as outraged as I am? I don't know. Maybe you're not, but shoot me an email. Email is, I haven't gotten out of the email in a long time. <laughs> it's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact 
at psychologyinseattle.com. Or you can go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, and go to the Contact Us tab and fill out the form there and send us an email. Or you can perhaps comment on this if it's on YouTube or, well, I guess you can't do it because it's a patron only. You can comment on patreon.com. And as you know, if you've ever emailed me, I respond because I enjoy interacting with you guys. So let me know what you think. And if you have an opposing point of view, by all means, let me know. I enjoy hearing the other side of the story. Am I screwed up? Was I wrong about anything? Am I emphasizing something in a way that shouldn't be emphasized? Am I not emphasizing something that should be? Let me know. You know, we're all idiots. I'm an idiot, that's for sure. And I don't mind being wrong every now and then. All right, well, that does it for the episode. (sighs) Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do. Thank you.